The story of UPN now takes us to the year 1999. While the network was still seen as an ongoing perennial joke among the television industry, that didn't mean the network didn't have at least some measure of success, both with their urban comedy programs and their action shows. But no matter how big or how small the successes were, it all paled in comparison with the fact that their nearest competitor was cleaning their clock on a weekly basis. Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my raccoon gal. While we do promise to go over the WB's highs and lows down the line, the story of UPN would be incomplete without sizing up their competition from time to time. For the first year of both networks' existences, UPN actually had an early lead thanks to Star Trek Voyager. But seemingly little else. Also the fact that UPN was on two nights a week when it debuted, while the WB was only on one. So perhaps the early lead UPN had could be marked with a bit of a handicap. But then in 1996, while UPN was strategizing with an action show slash urban comedy game plan, the WB, which also started with largely urban fare, decided to go into a different direction. First, expanding its programming to Sunday and Monday nights in addition to the Wednesday it already had. But more importantly, put on shows that are aimed at diametrically opposed audiences. UPN's focus was the urban and young male demographic. The WB repositioned its canons towards family, females, and especially teens. Culminating with the debut of Buffy the Vampire Slayer in the spring of 1997, and Dawson's Creek in the winter of 1998. Long story short, the gambit worked, and over the next few years, the WB would mop the floor with UPN, no matter how much UPN would constantly claw itself from the brink. Which brings us to 1998, and the following partially paraphrased words mentioned in the book Season Finale, The Unexpected Rise and Fall of the WB and UPN. This is in regards to the man who the network hired to try and reverse their fortunes. And I quote, He came to UPN with a fully formed vision, almost a calling, for where he wanted to take the network. He firmly believed there was a blue-collar, silent-majority demographic out there just waiting for some meat-and-potatoes entertainment fare. Not every show had to be about good-looking people living in New York or L.A. He was convinced the plethora of witty, urbane shows was turning Joe Sixpack and his girlfriend away from broadcast television. The co-author of the book then added, quote, In his first months on the job, he spent a good deal of time just sitting outside his office, cigar in hand, as he pondered the practicality of his Middle America vision and how he should execute it. Marketing was crucial, but the bottom line was that it was all about the shows. If he could come up with one hit show, one good comedy, UPN and his own reputation would be made. End quote. The he in this case would be a man named Dean Valentine. You know, I, I really felt that the world of network television was uh, ending. I mean, I thought about it a long time, and apart from any uh, personal involvement in it, uh, you know, the network, the, the entertainment business, and, and particularly the network television business, was built on uh, a narrow, a fundamentally monopolizing distribution. Own a television station. Why would I? Why would I go on? Why would I spend money to put it in practical terms? Why would I spend money on a cable bill if I can get if I can go to Hulu and get the shows directly? And and uh, that is indeed what's happening. So it means that the large entertainment companies, television as I knew it growing up and, the, and as I loved it growing up and as I was part of it uh, uh, as an executive, is going to die. It has to remake itself into something very, very different. So it's not worth being part of anymore. There is nothing to be part of anymore. Valentine, whose career had spanned at places like NBC and Walt Disney Television, thought he knew what was best for UPN. Coincidentally enough, he was one of the creatives behind the making of Homeboys in Outer Space for Touchstone Television. Downplaying what little successes the network had at that point in favor of something that wasn't so much new to TV, but different enough so that more people would wind up paying attention. And while his first year as network president brought about some highly questionable, and at least in one case, flat-out controversial, new entries in the TV landscape... Gag when they see Abe Lincoln in drag. This lady has no other recourse but to give you a little slap. Entertainment Weekly calls it must-see-to-believe TV. 
They must know me from the penny. The Secret Diary of Desmond Pfeiffer. Valentine was not to be deterred. Two of his biggest successes at the network, though varied in size, took place in the year 1999. First, with the premiere of an animated adaptation of the popular comic strip, Dilbert. The notion that the strip was seen by a worldwide audience in newspapers was all the motivation the UPN staff needed to greenlight the show. Clearly, a comic strip that appealed to most of middle America could do the same thing if the characters walked and talked. But while Dilbert the series proved to be modestly successful for it to air for only two seasons, it paled in comparison to the show that came along just a few months later, one that turned out to be the network's silver bullet. If you smell what the rock is cooking. Although it's highly arguable as to whether or not this was a hit that they could call their own, or that they were simply renting out the space Thursday nights to the people who produced it, but what was then WWF SmackDown not only brought the network some much-needed revenue, but it proved to be so popular with the audience that they were seeking that UPN actually managed to nip at the heels of its Thursday night competitors. They still weren't number one overall, but to be consistently in third place out of six broadcast networks on a night that had had both Frasier, Friends, and ER as its competition was considered a triumph for UPN. So naturally, Dean Valentine and his crew thought they were going in the right direction. And for the 1999 TV season, the network's aim was to be more like the show that was suddenly getting them all the attention. One of the results of which is pain beyond even my own measurements. Who is Shasta McNasty? <laughs> They're the guys your mother warned you about. You guys are pathetic. Does she have a sister? (laughs) Shasta McNasty is coming at you in September on UPN. And now. Word on the street is, it's going to be big. Stay tuned. Network television has never looked quite like this. P.N. November in Telehell. Before you get ahead of me, let it be known that I try. God damn how I try to watch whatever's forced upon me down here with as much of an open mind as I possibly can. But also the reminder of our guilty pleasure rule, that even though we won't review shows that we like but other people hate, doesn't mean that we won't go in the opposite direction. I'm not just going to hate something because of consensus or because other people say so and I'd risk hurting their feelings if I thought the opposite. That's what being a critic is all about, the ability to express your opinions in a somewhat analytical sense. So, with that said, here's what you need to know about this show. It was created by a guy named Jeff Easton. A guy who, like many people we cover around here, went on to have long, successful careers as a writer and creator of various TV shows and motion pictures. A man who, by all accounts and purposes, seems like a perfectly good guy. And this good guy had an idea that was loosely based on another idea that happened three decades earlier. These are the monkeys. They tend to claim they monkey around. And while I'll give something else that got spawned off of this show its own day someday, the Cliff Notes version is that this show was the byproduct of executives manufacturing a band that's figuratively and literally made for television. The show was not only a surprise hit when it debuted, it actually won the Emmy Award for Best Comedy Series. And they managed to achieve this by being counter to what was considered the establishment of the day, that many sitcoms were often considered straight-laced, basic, nuclear family suburbanites in homes with white picket fences. The Monkees did this by not only pumping out original songs in every episode, but also do things that, arguably, reinvented the notion of breaking the fourth wall. First we get lost and run out of gas, and then Mike and Davey disappear, and then somebody starts shooting off a machine gun, and now this guy is searching the town, 
that's for the benefit of any of you who've tuned in late. Now, back to our story. Quit fooling around. What TV show is she watching? Ours, I hope. It was new, it was different, and it signaled to other future TV shows that it was okay to mess with traditional formulas just a little bit. Fast forward back to 1999, where things have become just a little more countercultural, but not quite the way the monkeys would ever envision. Easton would pretty much take the format that the monkeys would pioneer and add a concoction made up of new metal speed wrap, frosted tips in men's hair, the popularity of the WWE and extreme sports, scantily clad women, and I'm guessing bath salts as a secret ingredient. Put them all together, and you have... The title of this show, Shasta McNasty, was called as such because it was the name of the band that our three protagonists would take part in, in an effort to achieve some semblance of fame. The trio was composed of, again, talented individuals in real life who would all go on to do better things with their lives. Starting with the leader of the band, Scott, played by Carmine Giovinazzo. Much later on in his career, he would have a regular role on CSI New York as forensic scientist Danny Messer, and is still very active in acting today. Bandmate number two, Randy, would be played by Dale Godboldo. Much later in his career, he would make the rounds on the TV guest star circuit, plus a regular role on American Crime Stories People vs. O.J. Simpson, and is still very active in acting today. Bandmate number three, Dennis, will be played by Jake Busey. And yes, that is indeed the son of Gary. How am I doing today, Gary Busey? You're doing great! Good! Then I'll keep it up! Not unlike dear old dad and his fellow co-stars, he too went on to have a long, fruitful career in movies and TV shows. Though in Busey's case, he was really seen as more of the blockbuster casting coup in the eyes of UPN, thanks in part to appearing in then-recent hits like Starship Troopers, Enemy of the State, and The Frighteners, among others. And the reason why we feel the need to mention that all three of our participants and Jeff Easton went on to have long, successful careers is that considering what we're about to get ourselves into, it seems nothing short of miraculous that everybody involved would still have careers once this is all said and done. After realizing that the network may have struck gold with the debut of what was then WWF SmackDown, UPN felt the best place for their 90s answer to the Monkees to make its debut would be immediately after wrestling so it could bask in the glow of SmackDown's ratings. Five days later, the show would officially premiere. The question is, would that glow be natural, or would it be the result of something akin to a nuclear accident? Looks like you have exactly two minutes to find a hazmat suit and strap yourself in for dear life as we inspect the fallout that this show could bring us after the break. What are we drinking, my lord? Orange soda, just one of 14 great Shasta flavors. This week on Telehell's premium content of the damned. Eyewitness accounts and rare photographs and art bring the Old West to life. You'll meet the gunfighters. Men like John Wesley Harden, so mean he once shot a man just for snoring. Keep only the volumes you want. You can cancel at any time. Here's how to order. The only way to listen to Telehell's premium content of The Damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast For just a few bucks a month, you can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. Now at new low prices. And now, back to this week's torture. October 5th, 
1999. Fears that the Y2K bug would materialize in a few months causes doomsday preppers to become a thing. Blue, da-ba-dee-da-boo-da, by Eiffel 65, would materialize, causing that group's popularity to also become a thing. And at 8 p.m., 7 p.m. Central, Satan forgive us for what we're about to inflict. After shamelessly sampling the theme to Peter Dunn for its opening transition, we see the boys living out their seemingly carefree lives. Yes, you're moaning in Venice boardwalk. I'm sorry, man. How many times do I have to tell you boys, voyeurism is wrong? But this isn't voyeurism. We're just watching it get naked. Yeah. No, the first guy was right. Having a hidden camera peep into another person's window while they're undressing is voyeurism. And we should probably nip in the bud who exactly they're voyeuring into. Um, actually, a download is when you can download a picture and then actually keep it forever, which is really sweet. Oh, really? So, you know, you can look at everything on the Internet, but if you want to keep it in your computer base, you can download me, and then you'll, you know, have a picture forever. That's what a download is. Our special guest star in this episode is a woman who, at one point, was considered the most downloaded woman on the Internet. In fact, I think that exact claim became a registered trademark of hers. Her being Cindy Margolis. The amazing thing about her is that she's earned that most downloaded reputation without ever having to take her clothes off. Sure, she was still scantily clad, certainly, but it was always in good taste. Which, considering late 90s internet trends, was more of an impossible feat to pull off than jumping the Grand Canyon with a pogo stick. So, clearly, she was, and she had, a popular showbiz figure. But can she act? Don't answer that question yet until we have equal opportunity voyeurism among the opposite sex. Oh, and look at him. How does a guy like that get a girl like her? All right, there goes this towel, baby. Damn. Oh, oh my. I'm guessing that's how. Is that real? Where does he keep it, though? Did he just pick up a bat? And now that the clock is ticking on just how low the common denominator can go in 21 minutes, it's time to roll the credits and get bombarded by what these three stooges seem to call their day-to-day lives. Which is essentially boiled down to dude stuff. As in, dude, let's mess around town, brah! Which, based on their surroundings, looks like Venice Beach, California. So, naturally, this means even more... Booty, booty, booty! Yeah, boy! Or, to be more courteous, women in bikinis. But as we see the trio messing around, we mention that this show has three principal cast members. What we neglected to mention is that there's actually a fourth participant. The trio has a neighbor in their loft apartment who's pretty much there to be the Margaret Dumont among the McNasty's Marx Brothers. For the pilot episode only, she would be played by one Miss Mary Lynn Rice Cub. And if you don't know who she is, permit me to remind you. Okay, when we find the nerve gas and the alert level drop, you can have some chamomile tea and I'll tell you all my secrets, okay? Snail! Yeah, I heard you were doing the Bog Sogs Lady Reboot thing. Did you lose my invitation? No, you weren't invited. Come on, you don't want the coolest chick in the world around? You're so jealous, Avi. She's a fucking bitch, that's why. <laughs> oh, I'm a superman, I'm gorgeous in every way. She, too, would eventually see a much better life after the televised death that is this show. In fact, in a 2007 interview with the AV Club, Rice Cub's experience on the show was just about what you expected it to be. Stating, when it came time to audition for a movie, quote, One time I did this pilot called Shasta McNasty, and I remember director Paul Thomas Anderson saying, Shasta McNasty, Mary Lynn? Really? But then what ended up happening is I did the pilot. We were roommates with three guys who would look out their window at girls having sex across the way. That's how they spent most of their whole day. My part was like, you guys, come on, man. I was so miserable and struck out so badly that they recast me. I think they thought I was funny at first when they cast me. The girl they recast was, like, in her underwear. So I think I've been lucky so far when something's not right. End quote. So clearly, not unlike her future character from 24, Mary Lynn knew to keep her cool in the face of a crisis. 
I understand and I don't want to slow you down, but I'd appreciate it if you'd unlock volume five. There are a few things that I'd like to see. I don't need to know what you'd like to see. Okay, it's unlocked. For the record, Rice Cub will be replaced for the rest of the series by one Miss Jolie Jenkins, someone else whose career actually managed to survive this show with guest star roles and even regular roles on contemporary cable programs. But I digress. Act 1 begins with a combination of people-watching and peephole-watching, without the use of actual peepholes. Oh, pulse check, pulse check, pulse oh, check. I got you. Yeah, get all the kinks out, dog. Oh, yeah. Get them all out. Mm-hmm. See that? See, I got it in my target zone right now. Oh, I got the target Ouch. zone. Ouch. Oh, come on Ouch. over. Hello, Bendo. And once again, our leader of the group swings by to be a cock blocker. You guys know the difference between actually participating in life as opposed to just watching it? I like watching it. Yeah, me too. There's more life than just gawking at girls, though, dudes. Yeah, he's right. We should try talking to chicks, too. Yeah, yeah. How can we cross that line? Take it away, Rick Moranis and Bert from Sesame Street. Stick out your hand and say, is it life grand today? Stick out your hand and say hello. (laughs) And considering the rest of the show that we got to sit through, we could all use a wholesome interjection. Anyway, one way for the guys to meet women is for them to randomly adopt a dog who they train by using a product placement Dilbert doll as a fetching toy. Which brings us to another digression, but this one actually has a point. The fact that the show, Dilbert, was scheduled to air immediately after Shasta for the 1999 season, which is unfortunate because the season before, Dilbert actually performed pretty well by UPN standards. Once the schedules changed for the fall, the writing was on the wall for Dilbert. Even strip creator Scott Adams went as far as to personally blame the show for its premature cancellation, stating in a 2006 interview with GroundReport.com, quote, On TV, your viewership is 75% determined by how many people watch the show before yours. That killed us. End quote. A statement he would eventually do an about-face on in the dumbest way possible years later. But I'm going to ask you to find that contradiction yourselves. As we now embark in what the show will consider a running gag for this episode, involving trying to get pizza for free if the delivery guy doesn't make it in 30 minutes. Hey guys, gentlemen. Uh, so I'm just thinking about whipping up me a turkey pot pie, but I couldn't help noticing the giant numbers behind the oven. You guys know anything about these? I don't know. I'm looking for words now, guys. Damn, 26 minutes. Lucky I got here in under 30 minutes. Apparently someone took the numbers off the building. Ha! 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 The trio continues to do their voyeuristic duties, but this time with a mission in mind. Who the hell is that? That's not our girl. Previous assistant. Yeah, man, keep it the hell away from your family reunions. We gotta do something. We gotta tell her. Why? We don't wanna mess this up, man. Hello? Now we got two hot naked chicks. Alright, check this out. If we tell her and she dumps Romeo, she's gonna need someone to comfort her. Rebound sex. Oh, I can be rebound guy. Oh, yeah, no, baby. no, me, me, me. I'm the rebound guy. Nah, you want to play in her sandbox, you're going to trade in that little digger for a steam shovel, baby. A formal introduction as to who everybody is on the show doesn't help in the slightest. I'm Scott. That's Randy over there. That's a tracking anklet Rand's got on his leg. He was framed for a string of car thefts in Chicago. <laughs> Wait a minute. This ain't my car. And then there's Dennis. What can I say about Dennis? He's just not a people person. Hey, yeah, is this Feed the Children? Yeah, I got some leftover pizza for you. What do you mean you don't want it? It's it's pepperoni. Kids love pepperoni. Yeah, well, screw you, pal. We call ourselves Shasta McNasty. We just signed our first recording deal with an almost major label, and they hooked us up with a serious amount of cash. Ten grand to cut a demo, which we were all over until we ran into a minor snafu. Hey, What's going whoa, whoa. on? Hey, what happened hey, to What the Funk Records? They signed too many lousy bands and went bankrupt. They're turning this into a Baskin Robbins. So that's the bad news. Good news is that we got to keep the demo money, which left us with enough for this killer pad, fat entertainment system, DVD, and the big screen. And check this out. PlayStation and N64. Hmm, Tarek 2 or Metal Gear Solid? I think both. Why, thank you, kind sir. That was insightful. As we now introduce our Millennium Margaret Dumont to the proceedings in the hopes that she acts as the in to far too many raging yangs. That's Diana. She lives next door and shares our kitchen, something the landlord failed to mention when we first moved in, which made for a very interesting first morning. Am I in the right house? 
Yeah, I'm guessing those are your shorts in the dishwasher. I sleep naked. And I have a phobia about eating breakfast with a penis staring me in the face. So I guess we each have our own little quirks. Could you not point that little thing at me? Or in that case, a raging wang, complete with a shot of our ringleader's ass. Which may seem shocking now, but remember, we were only five years away from Nipplegate happening at that big football game. <coughs> Episode 11. You could practically get away with partial nudity back then, and nobody would even care. Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? Except for them, of course, but they'll complain about anything. In the midst of all the chaos, there actually is a plot to this story. Should the McNasty boys do the right thing and let Margolis know that her boyfriend is downloading himself into another woman at the risk of revealing that they only found out about it through their peeping Tom foolery? How are we going to tell her without really telling her? Ooh, we, we, we show the video. Ooh, great idea, genius. What do you think we're going to say? Excuse me, miss, we've been spying on you for the past three months, but we have... Oh, I got it, I got it. In a roundabout way... Mr. Busey the Jr. has a point. A responsible human being would probably do that regardless of the repercussions that may result from outing themselves as a peeper because, deep down, they feel it's the right thing to do. Emphasis on responsible human beings. Remember when I found another guy's underwear on Susan's couch? <laughs> and they turned out to be a not-so-ex-boyfriend <laughs> Bob? That ended our relationship quick. I like it. I like it. It's evil, but I like it. It's fun. I think we just heard the marketing for the show in that one line. Shasta McNasty. It's evil, but I like it. It's fun. Tuesdays at 8 on UPN. Anyway, that's the plan. To plant another girl's panties inside the couch of the lady that they're peeping on. And where exactly do they get the bait? Where do we get the panties? The only reason I'm doing this is because I'm sick of women being portrayed as mere playthings for your perverted sexual urges. Ooh, I'm feeling a perverted sexual urge right now. She says immediately after giving the boys a plaything for their sexual urges. But hypocrisy will have to wait, as the boys break into the ladies' apartment in a sequence of events that... All but makes me give up on humanity were it not for the fact that I already gave up my humanity a long time ago when I got sent to hell. I've already posted this scene to our YouTube channel as this week's trailer, but let me just give you the basics. The leader of the group plants the panties in the couch while, at the same time, running afoul of a parrot. The results of which could simply be described as performance art. Buster water crackers! I said Buster water crackers! Sorry, no crackers today, pal. Hey, Jack off! Crackers are over here! Jack off! Jack off! Jack off! Sorry, if I, if I give you a cracker, will you shut up? It's a damn good thing that my soul is already down here because those three minutes would have crushed it all over again. Act two begins with the leader of the Shastas getting rushed to the hospital in the form of a musical interlude. Just as a reminder, these guys are supposed to be the monkeys of the 21st century. They did interludes on their show so that these guys could do the same. Though, I wouldn't exactly go comparing this piece to Pleasant Valley Sunday. Only escapes out the window of I can't fly without a cape, but will I die for a day? It's not the fall, it's a sudden stop. I woke up with a headache and a throbbing knot. My last thought was a parrot with an attitude. I hope my girl showed me a lot of gratitude. Is that true? It didn't work, what a twist. I would have risked off for the sex, off for the kids. Check it out. Afterwards, his friends treat his pain with the utmost of dignity. <laughs> hey, man, what, what are you doing? Check it out. Here we go. 
I'm your father. <laughs> wait, wait, check this out. Check this out. Hey, hey, give him breast implants. <laughs> Stupid as that scene was, it's still a better medical scene than anything on Grey's Anatomy. As we return to the loft, we see if the panty plan resulted in any progress whatsoever. And to circle back to a few minutes ago, we find out if Cindy Margolis, the most downloaded woman on the internet, can act. Hi, hi, how was your day? I'm not talking to you. This guy's toast. You want to explain this? It's your birthday present. I wanted to get you something soft and silky like you. What? I know how much you like that. This guy's smooth. My present? That is so sweet. Yeah. I can't believe she's buying it. So, to answer those questions, no on the progress, and too soon to tell on the acting. As we now see take two of the pizza delivery running gag. I would have gotten here earlier, but apparently the cops got an anonymous tip that I had a pound of Colombian stashed in my ass. (laughs) I hope it's still hot. Ha. Ha. Ah. Now it's on to plan B to score some rebound sex. Earlier in the show, after observing somebody using their dog to be a conversation piece, the gang uses the one that they adopt to pretty much accomplish the same thing. So now the McNasties use their dog to their advantage by training it to walk into Margolis's path while jogging, complete with her in a sports bra and slow motion cameras. All right, there he is. He's got the doll. What's he doing now? He's, uh, he's, he's, he's licking his ass. Go get the girl. Get the girl. You, you ever think Lassie did that? Did what? You know, when they were like, hey, Lassie, go say Timmy. You ever think Lassie just said, screw Timmy. I'm going to go around and lick my ass. <laughs> and because we apparently live in a world where there are no rules or consequences, the plan actually works. Margolis is in the loft, and she's actually speaking to the guys. But not before a quick interjection about the dog they adopted, who, curiously enough, happens to be named Dinner. Interesting name for the pup, but I'm sure there's something lighthearted and quirky about Dinner's backstory and... Hello, Mr. Kim. I'd like a pound of your excellent eel and a blowfish for Randy. Nah. Say, he's a cute little fellow. He's a chun-chun. What an interesting name. What does it mean? Tonight's a chun-chun. Please stand by while our host regains his sanity. We're almost done. We can do this. The boys show Margolis the whole crux of this monstrosity of a story taking place. Do you live around here in the neighborhood? Yeah, right across the street. Oh, uh, yeah? Where exactly? Oh, right over... Oh, my God! Is that my boyfriend? I can't believe it! Gosh, I'm sorry. It must be so devastating. How can you do this to me? I'm here for you. I'm here for you. That's right. It's okay. So, with only three minutes left, you would think that the main conflict has been resolved. That our head of the Shastas is going to get himself some. We can only be so lucky. Ooh, looks like Scott did the McNasty. So, <laughs> how'd Scott's date with the dream girl go? Oh, we're about to find out. Find out for what? Oh, hey, you're supposed to be over there. Rebound it. Yeah. She spent all night bitching and moaning how horrible men are and how she wishes we'd all die painfully. Present company included. But go on. You, I can't believe it. You, you screwed up rebound sex. She will not be having rebound sex for a long time. Well, she's having it with somebody. Who the hell is this dude? A chick. Oh, tartar. You drove her into the arms of another woman? Oh, man, dear. Penthouse, I never thought those stories were true, but my God. Yeah, whatever you did, two very big thumbs up, baby. So, what did we learn today? As if I cared. I guess I learned something this week. I learned that spying is wrong. Well, you're missing this. And I learned that sticking your nose in other people's business can only lead to heartache. Dude, if you want a moral, go save an orphan. But most importantly, I learned that when jumping out of a window, concrete can be very unforgiving. She's found the perfect solution. Eliminate all men. Yeah, except for me. And me. Why do I bother? A question that I'm none too eager to ask myself. But we're not done yet. Because comedy has the rule of three, we get a capper to our pizza delivery gag. But at this point in the proceedings, why bother? 
there has been absolutely nothing salvageable about this show, and if they think they can win me over in the final three minutes with one good moment, I wouldn't even let Vegas oddmakers touch the likelihood of that happening because of how immeasurable it would be. So, you know what? Fine. Go for broke. Go crazy. Fuck it. Make me laugh. All right. Two. One. All right. Let him out. That's 31 minutes, pizza book. Well, well, it's the big show. Yeah, you know, I'm sorry I'm late. I, I think there's something wrong with your elevator. Are you are you late? Late? You late? No. Late. Not late. Tell you, I got hungry, <laughs> so I had a couple of slices. Awesome. Oh, that's, you know, that's okay. You know, we were on a diet anyway, so we're going to we're gonna share us. We're sharing. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah. You know, you look familiar. Of course I look familiar. I'm the Big Show. And you can catch me Thursday nights on WWF UPN SmackDown. Uh, I'm a little short. That could be a huge problem. That's 58 cents in this chair. And here's another two bucks. Still $4 short. You got you with the canned goods? We got some pumpkin pie filling. Not really. You got any lima beans? Lima beans? Oh! What about videotapes of our neighbor? She's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. Very hot. Naked. Sexy. Dude, found a lima beans! So you give me the tapes, the beans, we'll call it even. <laughs> Holy hell! An actual funny moment! Granted, there was some Force Network promotional stuff in there, but god damn, thank you, The Big Show, for keeping me from going insane. Full disclosure, I was a fan of wrestling a very long time ago when I was alive, and The Big Show was always one of my favorites to watch. Not just here, but in that interview with Conan O'Brien and sex expert Sue Johansson. Okay, that looks just like a... a little well, Rabadaki? Oh, ducky. yeah, but Little Rabadaki does more than that. Oh my god. <laughs> We've lost him already. So, if you're keeping track, that makes the final score, actual funny moments, one, painfully excruciating moments that no amount of lobotomization can ever solve, 8,453,996,857. Given the benefit of a doubt so big that it's practically cavernous, the show did, I repeat, it did, Honest to Satan, try to step itself up after this pilot. They actually got a decent collection of B-listers to be in some of these episodes, including, but not limited to, a repeat appearance by Miss Margolis, several more WWE wrestlers continuing to tie in to UPN's only other major success at that point, Gary Coleman, Eric Estrada, Richard Klein, Ben Stein, several Playboy Playmates, Vern Mini-Me Troyer in a recurring role as their manager-slash-agent, and even Jake Busey's papa himself... Gary. How am I doing today, Gary Busey? But that wasn't enough to save an obviously fiery wreck. So, when the show reached its mid-season point, retooling took place. Gone was the McNasty in the show's title, simply calling the show Shasta. Unfortunately, all the things worthy of showing Malcolm McDowell in a clockwork orange remain. I began to feel really sick, but I could not shut my glasses. And even if I tried to move my glass balls about, I still could not get out of the line of fire of this picture. But perhaps in the most forgiving iota of credit I'm willing to give this show, the show did eventually manage to show us what things could have been if things worked out just a little bit better. And ironically enough, their best episode was their last episode, where they showed us a behind-the-music-esque mockumentary showing what everybody in the band would be like once they've earned and subsequently squandered their fame. I'm not going to subject you to another episode review, but as an olive branch to those who are willing to die on the hill believing that this show was actually good for all 22 of its episodes, these are my favorite moments from that episode. I'm not kidding when I say that this was a legitimately funny episode of television. However, if you're like a lot of other people and want to disagree, feel free to skip these next five minutes as soon as I say, enjoy. They ain't had no rhythm. 
They couldn't write lyrics. Dennis the Dumbass was playing drums with one stick. <laughs> and style. Forget about it. One time, one time in middle school, they showed up with their clothes on backwards. Talking about they, the white crisscross. <laughs> crisscross was very popular. <laughs> we got our asses kicked. Because we had our pants on backwards, we got kicked in the nuts. Man, we, we got the break we was looking for. We was on our way. Yeah, we got $10,000 up front. What the hell? What... What did you guys buy? What? Yeah, just a couple things, you know, spice up the pad. You know. I thought we agreed not to spend all our money. We didn't spend all the money. Yeah, what the hell you buy? Nintendo 64! <laughs> Look at him! Hey, Look at him! Turn on the radio, your song is playing! Oh, wow. Whoa! Turn it on, man! <laughs> The effects of stardom were beginning to change all of their lives, but this newfound wealth was affecting Dennis the most. A mansion, new cars, wild parties, all the trappings of success. But he was about to experience the dark side of fame. The, uh, you know, the little capsules, and I, you know, pretty soon that, that wasn't enough. So then it went on, went on to, you know, fistfuls of, uh, you know, prescription pain medication. Kind of turned into snorting pain medication. And that kind of just went into shooting, uh, you know, black prescription pain medication. Uh, yeah. Don't worry. I got a plan. Dude, face it. Shasta Manassi's over. We don't get any more airtime. The price has started to make fun of our name. We're through. Dude, they always made fun of our name, man. Now, all we have to do is drop the McNasty, and people will come on board for Shasta. Look, they're still going to know it's us. Not with our new sound. What new sound? I can't do it. This ain't right. Trust me. Boy bands are huge right now, Todd. My name's Rand. It's not what Tiger Beat says. Scott and Diana's relationship was beginning to put a strain on the band. What are you trying to say? I'll tell you what I'm trying no, to say. Let's calm down here. Let him say, let him say what he's got to okay, say. Fine, let fine, him say fine, fine, fine. You are whipped. Oh, yeah. Well, I quit. I quit. You guys can't survive without me because I am the band. Yeah, right. It's a joke. I'm the band. Hey, listen. We're all the band here. You? You're not the band, man. Yeah, it's never really were the band. After a long period of soul searching, the guys decided to pursue solo careers. Oxygen. Something was about to change the fortunes of the band once again. You guys aren't going to believe this. Check this out. Vic just called, all right? Apparently, there was a prison break, and one of the guys escaped to the Czech Republic with our last CD. He's a DJ now, and we're rocking in Prague. Number three on the charts, baby. Wow, man, that's great. Where's Prague? All right. Shasta McNasty's back. Well, after we got back from Europe, the band decided to take a little break, and the, the money from the tour really allowed us to pursue other interests. Dennis now pursues his first love, puppetry. I've always loved puppets. Yes, you have. The fluidity and the form and the storytelling. Not to mention the fantasy aspect. Woohoo! You know, I've, I've come up a little bit since my days in Shasta Big Nasty, but you know, Scott and Dennis always gonna be my homeboys. You know, straight up. And, and I and I do believe the music we created is something that still in, influence the kids. Damn it! Tito! Give me it, man! Just turn this thing off, man! Jesus Christ! Kill it! Break noise! I hear noise, man! I hear noise! Diana can now be heard in hotels all across the Las Vegas Strip, performing many of the Shasta McNasty classics. And at first, you know, I felt a little bit weird about singing the old songs, but Dennis and Rand both said it was good we were keeping them alive, huh? I would, I would get kind of angry when people would request ain't nothing but the Shasta McNasty, but then I thought to myself, how could I blame them? This music was a big part of our zero years. Ain't nothing but the Shasta. McNasty coming at ya. Ooh, that was a good one. <laughs> 
If the entire series was more like their final episode, I can guarantee you that it would still be on television today. Unfortunately, making a first impression like they did pretty much ruined any chance the show would ever have of being taken seriously, no matter how hard it tried. A truth that is evident in our nine circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, treachery. Disregarding the final episode, which actually managed to put in a genuine amount of effort, if this show was meant to cater to middle America like Dean Valentine was hoping to do for UPN in general, then clearly the trajectory to stick the landing may have been off by about several hundred thousand miles. The reason people tune into shows like Wrestling and Star Trek, and especially on UPN, was because both of those things were established brands that already catered to an established audience. That audience was built in, and they were gonna come out of the woodwork to tune in no matter what because they like things that are familiar. This, I honestly don't know what the here I'm looking at and who this could have possibly appealed to. And yet, appeal it did to somebody. Because not only was this show granted the dignity for running for an entire season of television, but the show, if you can believe it, attracted viewers. In fact, when the show premiered post-Smackdown, it was the beneficiary of 4.5 million viewers, which for UPN standards was considered respectable, only for it to inevitably taper off once it aired in its regular time slot. But still, this show had fans. Boy, did they have fans. Rabid, fervid, defending fans who, to this day, still crow that the show never got a fair chance, that it was ahead of its time, that it aired on the wrong network, that people didn't get it, that the people who hated the show were pussies, and perhaps the most jarring fact about this show, the fact that it was Honest to Satan, nominated for a People's Choice Award for Favorite New TV Comedy. And yet, if that final episode of theirs was any indication, maybe I'm missing something. And if I am, I invite you to enlighten me, because it's the only way that I will ever learn something. And as always, keep it civil and show your work. But getting to the point, this show tried to take what was revolutionary about the monkeys and dipped it in a vat of sulfuric acid. To its credit, it was different enough so nobody could get sued, so it escapes fraud. But as long as the essence of the monkeys was meant to be there, we still gotta tag it for heresy. There was probably more sex jokes by volume than most shows, so lust is a given. There are scenes where the characters are getting their bodies destroyed in cartoonish ways, so violence is a given. And the mid-season retooling of the show, including the title adjustment, may have been seen as a formative step to some, but whenever a show gets retooled, it's often because it's whatever the network wanted because, for reasons known only to them, they believed in the show. So we gotta give it to them for treachery. But while it would be easy to ring the wrath bell on behalf of my own anger watching the pilot, I honestly can't do that. Because... Again, given the benefit of overwhelming doubt, even though I didn't like this show save for that final episode, the show did appeal to somebody. And if the fervent defenders of the show on various YouTube postings of it are any indication, again, it had to have done something right. And more power to you if you were a fan. But then you have to figure in wrath from a different source. Those who are paid to give opinions that may wind up shaking up certain people's perceptions. You know how every once in a while I like to drop this soundbite? His critics were less kind. To say that the critics of this show were less kind would be an insult to the concept of kindness. They were downright scathing. And because the pen is mightier than the sword, there's the possibility that the show wound up suffering an unfair inevitability. 20 years after the show got canceled, the AV Club reassessed it, but did so in such a way that they pretty much trashed it all over again save for a breadcrumb of kindness that they gave to that final episode. So perhaps in their minds, and the minds of many others, time has yet to heal the wound. No matter what side of things you're on, though, we can all agree on one thing. That scene with the parrot is something that cannot be unseen. Jack up! Jack up! Jack up! 
I score this with the most extreme of prejudices, but Shasta McNasty only gets five out of nine circles of telehell when, quite honestly, it could have been more. If it hasn't happened already, maybe, just maybe, in a few years' time, this show could wind up with the same kind of reputation that certain midnight movies get for being so bad it's good. And maybe then I can understand why a show of this magnitude and also this depth sinking gets too little, too late admiration that it seems to be getting long after it got canceled. It's evil, but I like it. It's fun. As far as how this affected UPN in general, it's unsurprising to say that Dean Valentine's tenure as network president didn't last much longer after the 1999-2000 TV season. And while Shasta wasn't the nail in the coffin for his tenure, and believe me, there have been far worse things that aired during his time there, the damage was done for the network's first half of its existence. More than that, it sent out a signal of sorts that something else needed to happen in order for the network to be salvaged and stop the bleeding being inflicted by its main competitor. The second half of UPN's existence would be defined by a number of changes behind the scenes and behind corporate doors that would actually shape its future for the better. But before it could get better, there was still one lingering thread of its past that it had to contend with, proving once and for all, some habits are hard to break. Next time on Telehell, UPN November concludes with a show that had exactly one joke. The mullets are entering a new arena. This is outrageous! Where revenge is sweet. Stop this right now. There are children present, damn it. The mullets. All new UPN Tuesday, 9.30, 8.30 Central. Until then, after a show like this, I could use one here of a drink. And of course... If it's not in Telehell... It's not worth a damn. The part of the Please Stand By guy was played by Rob Maurer. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976. And all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. The show may be over, but you know where to find us. On social media, Twitter and Facebook, at Telehell Podcast. Want to hear some premium content? Go to patreon.com slash Podcast. And if you have any questions or comments about this show, feel free to contact us at our complaint line, telehellpodcast at gmail.com. But even more than that, please be sure to like, comment, rate, subscribe, lie to us all over the places where Telehell is streaming, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and many others, just by Googling Telehell. Jack up, Jack up, Jack up.